0: Good morning. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We intentionally put the turn and greet in between that interview and me because I did not think I could follow those three um, or four, actually. Uh, Really, really good stuff. We're so enriched by the families in our church who have... uh, experience disability, they really bring a life to our congregation in such a wonderful way. Um, I also want to just, before we dive into our sermon, share one thing with you, just a piece of family news. Some of you know Greg and Elizabeth Johnson. They went here for many years. Um, they've been gone for a few years. They moved away um, but we just got word this morning that their son, Cam, their adult son, Cam, is kind of fighting for his life down in Salem. And so they reached out and just asked if we as a church would pray for them. They've been involved here for a long time, served in many ministries. Greg was an elder for a, a season. And so I just wanted to pause before we dove into our message and uh, and pray for the Johnson family. So if you join me in that. Father, this morning we ask for your power and presence and peace to surround the Johnsons right now. We ask that your presence would be felt by them, that you would work through the the hospital and the medical staff to bring stability and healing to Cam. Lord, we're asking God for healing in his life and in his body. And Lord, we're asking for you to just offer peace to this family as they walk this tough road. Remind them, Lord, that they are not alone. Uh, Remind them that they are surrounded by your church, and your people, and help us, Lord, in whatever ways we can uh, to be your hands and feet in their life. That's our prayer, and we pray it together, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this morning we are uh, launching into a new series. Um, we just finished a number of weeks where we talked about being broken together, how we want to be a, a church that is more safe Um a safe place to be vulnerable and to be hurt and broken and to bring that together to the foot of the cross. That we're not the kind of place where you have to come all polished up and religious and looking great, but you can come with your hurts, um, with your hang-ups, with your struggles and be received not just by God, but by this community. And so we walked out of that series and now we're talking about joy. And I'd like to propose to you that this is a subject that not only fits with brokenness, and we're going to talk more about joy and suffering next week, but this is a subject that our world is craving. You see, we live in a world, and if you look around, you'll notice this, where people are on a relentless hunt for deep and lasting happiness. They're searching for this sense of sustained peace in their souls. They're looking for something that will actually give their life meaning and significance. You know, one of the things about social media Something that we've seen as a result of that is that if you look at social media, you'll find that it does something. It reveals very clearly exactly where people are searching for happiness. You see, it's not, it's not really a critical thing. I don't say this critically, but if you jump on Facebook or Instagram and if you scroll through people's pictures, what you'll find is actually a photo list of the things that make them happy. You'll see pictures of friends and outings and adventures and meals and drinks and desserts. Lots of desserts. People love to post pictures about desserts. A friend of mine recently said, my wife, I don't really do social media that much, but my wife's on there quite a bit, and someone said to me, I follow Amy on Instagram, and all it really is is pictures of you and her in the forest, right? And that's true, because we find a lot of happiness in the forest together, but the idea Um, in our world is that if you can string together enough of these happy moments, then maybe you will end up with a happy life. Maybe you'll have lived your best life. You see, there is this deep need for satisfaction that I sense down in my soul. And our world, by the way, friends, and not just our world now, but the human heart throughout history has been on this relentless search for joy. And fortunately, the Bible has something to say about this. Jesus comes and he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, at the very center of the life that Jesus offers is this thing that the human heart craves that every single one of us longs for. In John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his followers. He's talking to them about life with him. And this is what he says. I have told you this. I've told you about life with me, about staying with me, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I've told you about life in me so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Just think about that claim. Think about that offer. You can have full In complete joy, Jesus says, I am offering you the deep, rich, abundant life that your soul yearns for. See, that's the offer of Jesus. That's the life he longs for us to live. And so, for the next six weeks, we're going to talk about this life, this joy filled life. And to do that, We're going to dive into a little book in the New Testament called Philippians. It's actually a letter. It's a letter that was written to a very small first century church in the town of Philippi. And one of the main themes of this letter is joy. It's only four chapters long. It's not very long. But the words for joy, rejoice, and rejoicing are actually used 16 different times. 16 different times Paul talks about joy in this letter. And what's crazy is that Paul, the author, the guy who writes this letter, he actually writes it from a prison cell. Next week, we'll read that he is literally in chains. He is chained to a Roman guard, and yet he talks about how nothing in this world, not even being in chains, can rob him of the joy that he has in Jesus. And so today, we're gonna dive into this letter. We're gonna dive right into the beginning of it, and we're gonna talk about the foundation of joy, the foundation of where we're going in this series. And so if you have a Bible, grab one, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. If you forgot one, that's okay, we've got you covered. There's one right in the pew rack in front of you. You can pull it out, turn to Philippians. It's right near the end, it's like this far towards the back. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 950. Turn until you hit Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. Go eat. Popcorn, that's how I learned it in Sunday school, and I still remember it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, go eat popcorn. Not right now, that'll be after service. Um, Today we're going to read the first 11 verses of, of this magnificent letter. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, this morning we're talking about foundations of joy. What joy is, what it isn't. Where it actually comes from. And as we dive into this subject, there's a surprising little truth about the joyful life that's kind of hidden. It's hidden right in the very first verse, right in the very first phrase of this letter. Right away, we read that the author is a guy named Paul. And if you're familiar with Paul, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that Paul writes a number of letters in the New Testament to a number of different churches. And because of this, we know that most of the time when Paul begins a letter, he includes a title for himself. He introduces himself. He says, from Paul, and then he says, something about himself. He gives himself a position. He states his position. It typically goes like this. This is from Ephesians, a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul, like you know, this is what he does. He introduces himself with his title, with his credentials, with his position. He lays it out there. Here's the position I hold in your life. This is why you should listen to me You should listen to the things that I'm writing to you. Now, personally, I I could never do that. I wouldn't feel comfortable using my position or my title to draw attention to myself in any way. I am much, much too humble for that. But this is how Paul begins. This is how he starts his letters, generally. But what we notice about Philippians is that he doesn't do that here. In Philippians chapter 1, he never mentions that he's God's man. He never mentions that he's an apostle. He never shares his position. He never shares his title. He simply says this, I'm Paul. This is my buddy Timothy, and we are servants. We're servants. Now, why does he do this? Because If you understand the Roman world, if you understand the city of Philippi, at first glance, this doesn't really make any sense. I mean, this is a town that was a very elite Roman community. Philippi was a town where titles and status would have mattered a whole heck of a lot, where position and rank were key. You know, one thing that the Romans did was that they they picked specific strategic cities and they colonized them. They made sure that those cities, those important cities around the empire, were and were going to remain loyal to Rome. And how they do this, is they would take a whole bunch of retired military officers and they would move them to a city because they they knew that these men would be loyal. And Philippi was one of those cities. Philippi is located right at the front of a mountain pass. Actually, the mountain pass that connects Europe to Asia. And so this is a very strategic city. This city was right in the middle of all the trade routes, of all the travel routes, of all the places where militaries would go from Europe to Asia or from Asia to Europe. And so Rome wanted to make sure that they would control Philippi. And so what did they do? They sent a whole bunch of ex-military people there. And friends, I'll tell you from experience, no one cares more about title or position or rank than military folks. I know this because I grew up on an air base. And when you grow up in the military, here's one thing you know, where everybody stands, where they are in the pecking order. I remember just riding my bike around base housing and you could tell, who was who, why, because it says so right on the front of their house. I remember we lived in this little duplex for a while, and right on the front it said, Lieutenant Colonel Teixeira. And I was like, yeah, my dad's a Lieutenant Colonel. And then I met a kid who's Dad was a general, and I was like, oh, and his house was way bigger and way nicer. (laughs) They had like acreages over there in the general's quarters, right? But everyone was sort of grouped together, and everyone knew where they stood. The title and the status and the position was very, very important. This is how it would have been in Philippi. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony, and it was saturated with Roman culture. Historians say this, Rome was one of the most status-conscious, status-obsessed societies in all of the ancient world. It was built on the pursuit of honor and self-advancement and stuff. Let me say it this way. In Philippi, the prevailing philosophy was this. The way to be happy was to have position and status. The way to true happiness was to climb the social ladder. So it's actually quite shocking when Paul writes to this city and he starts his letter by using a word that no one in the entire Roman Empire would ever use in reference to themselves. He says, I am Paul, I am a servant. That word servant is the word And in Greek, it literally means slave. Dear Philippi, I'm Paul. I'm a slave. You see, Paul goes as far down the social ladder as he can possibly go. And one of the things that Paul is confronting in this letter right from the start is something that I believe he needs and wants to confront in you and I as well. And that's the temptation we all feel to confuse joy with happiness. To think that if we can just amass enough happiness in our lives, we will attain joy. If we can only put together enough pleasure, if we can only move up the ladder far enough and, and attain a title or a position or a status, then we will be happy. And if we have enough happiness, then we will find joy. But happiness and joy are not the same thing and they do not operate in the same way. Happiness is an attitude of satisfaction or delight based on some present circumstance, based on something happening in your life at the present time. Happiness, as I read this week, is related to happenings. Happiness is related to happenstance. Happiness is directly tied to what is happening in your life. On the other hand, when we talk about joy... We are not talking about something that is tied to circumstance at all. Joy is not tied to happenings. Joy can be experienced even when happiness is nowhere to be found. Now let me just pause real quick and make a very important point that I don't want you to miss. I'll say this real clearly. Happiness is not bad. This is not joy good happiness bad, this is joy does not equal happiness. But happiness is not bad. God is not anti-happy, he is pro-happy. When life is good and you feel happy, God's happy for you. Case in point, this week was my birthday. Another year went past and I did not die. So to celebrate this amazing accomplishment, Pastor Ted and his wife, Jenny, had Amy and I over for dinner. And for dessert, they served this thick, rich, moist, peanut butter chocolate cake. And with every bite, my life circumstances seemed to get better and better (laughs) and better. And as I was eating, I heard the Holy Spirit, God himself, whisper in my ear, have another piece. (laughs) You see, at least for a moment... That cake made me happy. I enjoyed it fully, and God enjoyed it with me. You see, God longs for us to enjoy the things of this world. That's why he offers us these things. He's not against enjoyment or pleasure or comfort or happiness. But here's the danger. Here's where we trip up. Here's the confusion and the temptation that will get so focused on happiness, that will spend so much time and energy trying to create circumstances that lead to happiness, that will actually miss out on the deeper and more important reality of joy. You see, we're fooled into thinking I'll be happy if things go well. I'll be happy if my needs are met. I'll be happy if my desires are satisfied. I'll be happy if I can avoid pain and everybody likes me. I'll be happy if I have status or position or title or success. I'll be happy if my kids are doing well. Do you know how Google records like search criteria when you type something into Google it'll start to guess what you're going to put? That's because Google sort of masses everything that everyone around the world types in. Do you know what the number one word to follow this search request is? Is my two-year-old, what's the very next word? The number one, most often put word behind that phrase in Google. Is my two-year-old gifted? That's how narcissistic parents are. Is my two-year-old, number one answer, survey says, gifted. You see, the idea here is, man, everyone wants their kid to be gifted. Why? Because their kid is gifted. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be successful. Then their smarts will reflect on me. Then my amazing genes will be passed on for future generations to behold my great knowledge and wisdom, right? There's this this whole idea that even gets, gets passed on to our kids. That if you are happy, if you just arrange the circumstances in your life, the right way then you'll find happiness and if you find enough happiness then you will land on joy and because we think this way our focus gets all lasered in on our circumstances we're constantly thinking about our circumstances the circumstances of our life and we think man if we could only get our circumstances right then we'll be good friends happiness is rooted in circumstances but it turns out that joy is not, not at all. Joy is rooted in something entirely different. Joy is actually rooted in meaning. You see, happiness is found in circumstances, but joy is found in meaning, and the greater the meaning, the deeper the joy see, what Paul understands and is going to communicate to the Philippians all throughout this letter is that God has made us, he's actually designed us so that we will actually grow in sustainable joy. And when, there's, and when there's increased meaning in our lives, then there's increased joy. In other words, if you aim at meaning, you tend to get happiness and joy thrown in. But if you aim at happy, you will ultimately get neither happy nor happy meaning. You see, it's an interesting thing. If your whole life is oriented around trying to arrange your circumstances, just trying to be happy, eventually it just starts to wear out. It just becomes shallow and thin and extremely self-centered, like a vacation that has gone on far, far too long. And so Paul starts this letter, and he doesn't say, Look at my circumstances. Look at my status. Look at what I've achieved or accomplished. No, he says, here is where I find meaning. Let me tell you where meaning is ultimately found. Here's the source of my joy. I am a servant of the greatest king and the most noble cause this world has ever known. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Ultimate meaning, ultimate joy. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. To all God's holy people. Now, sometimes that word holy trips us up a little bit. Anyone here refer to themselves as holy often? Such a holy person. No, that's actually kind of a weird, funky word in our culture. But in this culture, it, it simply meant different or set apart. And here Paul is reminding them of what it is that sets them apart. He's saying, remember where your lives find deep meaning and ultimately joy. And he says, you have a constant source of ultimate joy because you are in Christ. Potentially the two most powerful words in the entire New Testament. It runs throughout the entire New Testament. In Christ. You see, the New Testament's idea of being a Christian is not simply that we are followers of Jesus, that we follow him around, that we imitate him, that we try and obey his teachings and commands. That is not the whole story. The New Testament says that we are in Christ, that we are made spiritually one with him through his death and resurrection, that we are adopted as his children. That we are taken in as his sons and as his daughters, and that no matter what happens in this world, we are his. You know, one of my favorite definitions of Christian joy is this listen to this Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. (laughs) Isn't that good? Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. When God is sitting on the throne of my life, when he is king, when he is calling the shots, that is when I experience joy. Because I have joy in Christ, that I am in him, that I have been adopted as his beloved son. So this is a letter to a people who are living in a culture where they are constantly being told to chase after happiness, where they are constantly being told that if their life circumstances were only different, then they'd find real and true and deep joy. Anyone live in a world that maybe even remotely resembles theirs. And Paul just writes to say, no, Don't buy in. Don't settle for a fleeting, momentary happiness. Find lasting joy in Christ and knowing that you're his son, that you're his daughter, that he has invited you into the most meaningful mission this world has ever known the mission of making all things new, the mission of tearing down injustice and oppression and evil in this world. You see, that's what God invites you into, the most most amazing, ultimate source of meaning in the world and thus the most ultimate source of joy you could ever imagine. He's not there, but he's not done there. Next, he'll add another layer to the joy that, that we have and he'll call us to. He says, we'll have joy in Christ together. Listen to how he says it. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership, it's a really, really very practical word. It was about full partnership. It was a business word. When you'd go into business with someone, it kind of explains this act of being all in together, kind of joined, relationally financially, emotionally. He says, you have been partners with me in the gospel. This is Paul saying, we have been in Christ and on mission with God together. And this is exactly what the church at Philippi had done. They had not only supported Paul and his missionary journeys, but now that he's in prison, now that he's in chains, they have supported him even there. They've even sent one of their own, a guy named Epaphroditus, to visit him and help him and support him and encourage him. And this is why in verses 7 and 8, Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. No matter where I'm at, you've always been with me. All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, the literal translation of that last statement is I long for all of you with the bowels of Jesus Christ, which sounds kind of gross, really. See, the word for affection or bowels is the Greek word, we've talked about this before, splanchnon is maybe one of my most, uh, most favorite Greek words. Splanchnon describes the, us- the upper intestines, the heart, the liver, the lungs. This is where the Greeks believed that a person's most ardent emotions came from. So Paul is saying, with my most passionate emotions, I am grateful and thankful for your help and partnership and support. You see what he's saying he's saying joy is increased when we dive into things that have meaning with others you see to be in Christ and on mission with God brings me great joy but to do that with others it just deepens that joy it just takes it to another level there's a study out right now in the Journal of Socioeconomics and in this study it's a secular study They found that increases in people's income, like getting a raise at work, actually brings very little increase to their overall life and happiness. However, an increase of relational engagement in a person's life, a deepening of meaningful connection with someone is actually worth more than $100,000 a year in life satisfaction. A deep relationship, a deep connection, a strong sense of togetherness with another person will bring more satisfaction and joy into your life than me handing you $100,000 right now, which is why I'm not going to do that. (laughs) So back again to Paul. Where's he at? Well, financially, he's a wreck. He's in chains. He's dirt poor. But relationally... Paul's filthy rich. He says, every time I remember you, I'm grateful. Every time I pray for you, it fills me with joy. You see, not only does relationship add to joy, but joy also fuels relationship. There's this reciprocal relationship between relationship and joy, right? Back and forth, they fuel each other. And the question is this. How many of us, if we were honest, if we were writing a letter would actually write one that sounds quite a bit different than Paul's how many of us if we were to write a letter ours would go like every time i remember you i complain in all my prayers i always pray god why can't you change her why can't you make him different why can't i just have normal healthy people in my life that make things easy i don't want joy lord it's too hard it's too much headache i'll just settle for happiness you know, I read a, this week an article about a tax auditor who one day, during a break, actually made an Excel spreadsheet listing all the mistakes his wife had made during the past six weeks. Just put it down right on the screen. How do you think his wife felt when later she discovered that her husband, maybe now ex-husband, had now had done a flaw audit on her? Has anyone ever done a flaw audit on you? Have you ever done a flaw audit? on someone, on your spouse. You see, a lot of us may not have a spreadsheet on our computers, but here's the truth. A lot of us carry that spreadsheet around in our minds. And sometimes it slips out. Every mistake you make, I remember. I complain to God every time I remember all the ways that you fall short of my expectations. Friends, are you practicing the in Christ, on mission with God, life in deep partnership with others? Are you allowing deep relationships to fuel your joy? And are you the kind of person whose joy overflows onto the people around you with gratefulness and thankfulness in their lives? Next verse, i want to go back to verse 6. Because this verse is key and it offers us something that we have to hear, a key component of joy that we must not miss. Paul says this, Being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now that's a pretty famous verse. How many of you have heard that verse before? How many of you have memorized that verse as a part of a memory verse list in the past? He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This verse is quoted to support all sorts of things. And yet, I would argue that we maybe don't fully understand what this verse is actually talking about. You see, there's this wonderful picture that Paul is painting in this passage. And he uses two very specific words. He uses the word began and the word completion. And in the Greek, each of these words were both used. They were technical terms to describe the beginning and the end of a sacrifice. If someone was making a sacrifice, like a religious sacrifice, they would use these words. The word began as the beginning of the sacrifice, completion, to describe the end of the sacrifice. So when Paul talks about like God beginning something in you and then carrying it on to, to completion, he has something very specific in mind that God is doing in and through you. Paul's statement here is this. The thing that God has begun in you, Philippian Christians... Cedar Mill Christians, the thing he is wanting to grow and build and complete in your life is a life more devoted and committed to sacrifice. See, he's after more and more sacrifice in your life. Paul is saying, I am so thankful that God is going to call you into more and more sacrifices into more and more places where you don't think about yourself, where you don't think about happiness, where you don't think about ease, where you don't think about comfort, but where you lay yourself down and do what's best for another. That's the life he's calling you into. That's the life he wants to build more and more into you. More sacrifice, amen? Anyone pumped to get out of here today? Let's do this. Who's making lunch? Who's doing dishes, you know? Not me, I'll be, I'll be napping. Anyway. Um, The question, though, is, so Paul talks about sacrifice here, and what does it have to do with joy? How does sacrifice and joy relate? Joy, by the way, friends, if you remember, is rooted in what? Happiness is rooted in circumstance. Joy is rooted in meaning, and meaning, the most meaningful things in this world, often, if not always, require sacrifice. You see, again, if your life is guided by happy, you'll miss this, because the happy life will always try to avoid sacrifice. But a life of joy, Paul says, a life of joy will embrace it. A life of joy will embrace sacrifice. He says it this way in his letter to the church at Rome. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I want to worship God? Live a life of sacrifice. Paul says that God began this life of sacrifice in the lives of Philippians, and he is growing it in them. And the question for us is that: is this, is this happening in us? Is this happening in you? Are we growing in the sacrificial life? Not are we becoming more religious, but are we growing in the sacrificial life, in the life that lays ourselves down for this world and for others? Are we becoming less and less about me? Less and less about just settling for happy. Do you know who is a great example of this, by the way? You know who the very best example of, of sacrificing for the other is? Any guesses right here in church? Jesus. Very good. That was the, that was the layup. I lobbed you that one. Jesus is a great example of this. Listen to this. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. There's this really interesting verse that you've probably read before and maybe didn't quite understand. It says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Has that ever perplexed you before? For the joy set before him, he endured this like torturous, completely and utterly painful execution. Man, what... What a joy. That's not the way we typically think of joy. And yet, when we dig in, when we really understand this, it fits perfectly. Because sacrifice leads to meaning, and meaning leads to joy. And so Jesus gives the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate meaning of redeeming the world and all of humanity and reconciling us to God. And that gave him great joy. Joy. It was a great sacrifice, but he was overflowing with joy. Overflowing with joy. That's what Paul sees when he looks at the Philippian church. That's what he's calling them into. Not more pleasure, not more and more ease, not more and more comfort or pain avoidance, but a life that is growing in sacrifice and meaning and joy in Christ. All right, last point here today. I'm getting a little preachy. Verse 9. And this is my prayer. He ends this little section with a prayer. He's going to pray for this church. He's calling them into joy. He's calling them into this life of sacrifice and meaning and deep and ultimate joy. And then he prays, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, the thing I want us to see, first of all, as we look at this prayer, is what Paul doesn't pray for. You know, our elders went away this week on a retreat and spent some time just reading the prayers of Paul for the church. And we're saying, like, how does Paul pray? And I was, I was kind of reflecting back on that after we returned, and I was looking at this, and I was looking at other prayers. And one thing you notice about Paul, when he prays for the church, you know what he never prays about? He never prays that the church's circumstances will get easier, right? He never prays for happiness. He never prays that they'll kind of find themselves in more and more comfort. No, what does he pray for? He prays for perseverance. He prays that they'll be able to stand strong in the midst of sacrifice. He prays that they will lean into meaning and joy and the work of the gospel Paul actually prays them into a harder and harder life, if you really understand what he's talking about. He doesn't pray them into an easier life. He never sits around and says, man, it's been a real tough day. God, I really hope tonight goes smooth. I've prayed these kind of prayers before. I'm telling you, i got a long way to go in my prayer life if I'm going to line it up with Paul's. Paul says, man, God, mature them. That's, that's this whole like, list of things he lays out here, by the way. I thought to myself, we could do a sermon series on these three verses and just talk about Christian maturity and what it looks like to grow in the Lord and just walk through those verses. We don't have time to do it today, but I'll tell you what. Here's what Paul's praying. He's praying, I pray that they'll get closer and closer and closer to Jesus. Because when we get closer to Jesus, when we find ourselves more and more in Christ, when we find the King sitting more and more on the throne of our hearts, that's when we find ourselves in more and more meaning, and thus in more and more deep and unwavering and unmovable joy in this world. Paul prays for that. He prays that they would mature in Christ so that they would find the deep joy of knowing and walking with Jesus in this world. And then at the very end, he says what? He says, to the glory and praise of God. You see, here's the other thing about joy. It's not something we manufacture on our own. It's something that as we get closer and closer to God, he works in us See, I can't create joy for myself. I can work towards happiness on my own, but I can't create joy on my own. I need God. I need the Holy Spirit to produce joy in me. And since God is the one who produces meaning and joy in my life, he's the one who gets the glory and praise when it's there. You see, so the message here, the message of this entire series, the message today isn't go home and try a lot harder to be joyful. No, the message today is go home and lean into Christ. Get closer to Christ. Yield more and more of your life to Christ, and then he will produce joy in you. He will give you opportunities to sacrifice, to follow him into tough and hard and difficult situations, and to lean into deep meaning so that then deep joy will live in you. That's the offer. That's the offer. And so we'll close this morning the way we close every single Sunday, but don't you dare make it routine. We'll close at the table where we take the bread and the cup and we declare that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of what he did, what he has done, not because of who we are or what we've earned, because of what he did on that cross and in that tomb, we are now in Christ. And maybe today, as you come to the table, you need to bring something with you. Maybe you need to bring that area of happiness that you're tempted to chase. Maybe you need to bring like the reality that you just tend to say that you're a Christian, but here's the truth. You just live from Netflix show to Netflix show to Netflix show, or from glass of wine to the next glass of wine, or from vacation. And ever do this, just live from vacation to vacation to vacation because you call yourself a Christian, but really you're just living for happiness and you're sacrificing the joy that's available to you in Christ and God is calling you today. Don't settle for that stuff. Don't you dare settle for something that will ultimately disappoint you and leave you empty. He says, bring it to the table, lay it down. Repent from it, turn away from it. Say, God, I don't want to live for that thin and fleeting happiness anymore. I want to live for you. I want to live for your kingdom, and so I invite you, Jesus Christ, through your death and resurrection to be Lord, to be king in my life once again. All that you can say today in this one little meal, Lord Jesus, be Lord, be King again. I don't want to chase happiness. I won't settle for anything short of joy. Your joy, the ultimate joy that comes from being in you. So I'm going to pray, and then the elements will be available at tables all around the room. When you're ready, come to the table. Confess that area of happiness that you are chasing or that you're tempted to chase and then exchange it for a life of joy in Christ again this morning and realign your heart back into following and under the lordship of Jesus. Amen? All right, I'll pray and the tables will be open. Father, this morning, we confess and repent that we, too often, Lord, I know it's true for me, Chase after happiness, chase after circumstances that I think will lead to momentary pleasure or ease or comfort. Lord, too often I sacrifice the deep meaning of life in you, the deep joy that you offer for something that's so silly or so frivolous, and so we just confess that, Lord, and we repent of it, and we ask God that by your Holy Spirit you would pull us back into lives that follow you that you pull our hearts back into the place where we're flying the flag of your residency in us. So we come to this table, Lord, and we remember your death and we remember your resurrection and we remember your power that is available to us. And we declare again that you are king, that you are Lord, that you are savior and that you are friend. We love you and we thank you and we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.